Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Now, as I said, the town was chosen because of its strategic position at the confluence of the Delaware and Lehigh Rivers, which made for the movement of materials and supplies for such an expedition easier and more efficient. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Andrew Zellers Frederick discussing the military occupation of eastern Pennsylvania. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Iron and Paper, purveyor of authentic artifacts of the American Revolution. Visit them at ironandpaper.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Andrew Zellers Frederick, discussing the military occupation of Easton, Pennsylvania. I got to know Andrew Zellers Frederick on my uh, television series for the Pennsylvania Cable Network, Battlefield Pennsylvania, when we discussed any number of Revolutionary War issues in the eastern half uh, of Pennsylvania and the New Jersey border. And he's one of these people that's really dialed in to the history of a region. Uh, And it's a region that a lot of really important Continental Army figures worked through and lived in and operated in throughout the course of the war. This is one of those great reminders that when you look at the big picture of the war, uh, you get one image. But as you go to these regional places, eastern Pennsylvania, western Virginia, northern Maryland, uh, western New York, as you zoom in geographically on a region... Uh, you do get, even though it's a much more narrow focus, ultimately a better understanding of the event. So here's an example where we have uh, a military occupation of a very sleepy, very quiet, but very important, and I, w- I would say relatively normal colonial city. Uh, and you get to see not only how the military interacts uh, in its own sphere, But you can draw on sources from local populations and see how they viewed not only the war, but the inconvenience of having an army in their face, in their streets, eating their food, shopping in their stores every single day. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Andrew Zellers Frederick. Andrew Zellers Frederick, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Tell us about your background. Well, my interest in American history began when I probably was around eight, when my parents took um, me to historic sites such as Valley Forge, Washington's Crossing, Colonial Williamsburg, and Gettysburg. And I was just fascinated, and I I couldn't get enough of it. Um, I was an undergraduate history major at Temple University and received my graduate degree in history from LaSalle University where I was the first student in the program to be published even before graduating. Um, I naturally entered the public history field 
Uh, and I began my professional career as a park ranger historian at two premier national parks, Independence National Historical Park in Philadelphia, where I conducted programs in such landmarks as Independence Hall, and also at Virginia's Yorktown Battlefield, which is part of Colonial National Historical Park. I have been the executive director of several historic sites, uh, including Philadelphia's historic Rittenhouse Town, the National Historic Landmark, which is the 1690 site of America's first paper mill industrial community, the Masonic Library and Museum of Pennsylvania, the Historic Woodlands Trust, and the Northampton County Historical and Genealogical Society located in Easton. I served as the director of the historic Jamestown Fund, which was a partnership between the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and Preservation Virginia for the 1607 first permanent English colony in North America, where I had the unique experience of working with the site's archeologists, including Sir William Kelso, as they made their exciting discoveries. I had the privilege of raising funds and managing the project to save the iconic 17th century Jamestown Church Tower, the only remaining above ground structure from the original colony. And um, recently, uh, until its permanent closure in Washington's Crossing, I was the acting librarian for the David Library of the American Revolution. I now serve as the founder and president of the Lehigh Valley American Revolution Roundtable, which meets at Lafayette College. I have many published works, both nationally and internationally, primarily on the topic of the American Revolution, and I frequently give lectures and other related programs on this subject. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, as I mentioned, I was the executive director of the Northampton County Historical and Geological Society, which is located in Easton. I also lived on the grounds that were General Sullivan's um, encampment in 1779. So naturally, I became very interested in the seven weeks or so that Easton was transformed into the major, major staging area for Sullivan's expedition to destroy the Native Americans' ability to wage war primarily against the citizens of Pennsylvania and New York. As I began to conduct research on what Easton was like during this period, I found little had been formally done, and so I began my research into many original primary sources, which included those at the former David Library. What was the state of the war in 1779? Okay. Um, Well, by 1779, the war had entered a period of a somewhat stalemate for all the involved parties, at least for the first half of the the year. Um, Washington sitting near New York, watching the British garrison there, and the fighting had mostly subsided, except for skirmishes and such. But I think we need to do a brief chronology and summary of what had happened up to now, so this all makes sense. Um, The fighting that had initially occurred in Massachusetts in 1775 and 76 was really ended when the British were compelled to evacuate Boston. At this time, 
at the adoption and proclamation of the Declaration of Independence, the British amassed the largest military force ever seen in North America to completely defeat Washington's inferior forces um, around New York City. And they seized New York and all the area around it, which they held to the very end of the war in 1783. In addition, other expeditions captured Newport, Rhode Island, and they held that for several years. The successes for the Crown were followed by the occupation of New Jersey, which resulted in a bloody insurgency between all involved parties, including both regular and irregular forces. These royal victories were later countered when Washington achieved tremendous victories at Trenton on Christmas Day, followed by another triumph at Princeton to begin the new year. As a result, the British abandoned most of New Jersey. In 1777, an attempt was made to split New England from the rest of the states, um, which after initial military achievements resulted in the surrender of an entire British army under General Burgoyne near Saratoga, New York in October of that year. Almost simultaneously, another larger British force under General Sir William Howe captured America's capital and largest city of Philadelphia. Um, And they did this because they believed by the 18th century military adage that when you took an opponent's seat of government, the war would be over. However, the British did not comprehend that America's national government was loosely organized under the Articles of Confederation. So when Philadelphia was captured, the Continental Congress simply packed up and relocated first to Lancaster and then to York. Uh, This is after the battles of um, and British victories at Brandywine, Paoli, Germantown, and Fort Smithland and Mercer. Now, as the news of the British victories reached Paris, our minister to the court of uh, King Louis XVI, who was, of course, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, uh, he commented that General Howe had not taken Philadelphia, but instead the city had taken him. As the British sat and took advantage of all the city had to offer in the way of comforts, and they really did little militarily, while Washington's army suffered at Valley Forge. After 10 months of occupation and little to show for it, and with now a French alliance concluded with America, the British packed up in 1778 and marched back to New York with the Battle of Monmouth fought along the way, demonstrating the resilience of Washington's forces. Now, during 1778, uh, the fighting by Britain's military allies, the Native Americans, dramatically escalated. Although some of the tribes had elected to support the Patriot cause or to remain neutral, the majority decided to side with the British because they had watched their lands occupied by American settlers acre by acre. The British promised to restore these lands, which could only be accomplished if they were the ultimate victor. The Indians had turned out en masse for General Burgoyne's 1777 campaign, but their actions caused more harm than good for the royal cause, as they had attacked settlers indiscriminately, 
whether they were patriot or loyal to the crown. One ominous event that happened became an American propaganda coup with the violent murder of a young woman named Jane McRae, who was the fiance of a loyalist soldier. The ultimate result was that many who had initially supported the king now doubted the British were able to protect them and keep their Indian allies under control. Throughout 1778, there were brutal Indian loyalist raids along the New York and Pennsylvania frontier, especially in places such as the Wyoming Valley, New York's Cherry Valley, and the ultimate was something called the Big Runaway in central Pennsylvania along the Susquehanna River Valley, where countless settlers abandoned their villages, towns, and homesteads out of fear of Indian attacks. These settlers sent impassioned pleas to the Continental Congress and subsequently the Continental Army and state militias for protection. At this point, the British, too, were eyeing the South as it was believed they would find overwhelming loyalist support for the crown. What role had Indians played up to that point? Well, as I said, they were looking at their own predicament. As settlers were crossing the Appalachians and moving into Kentucky, or what will become Kentucky and Tennessee, and moving farther west, the Indians saw their land or hunting grounds uh, diminishing. And they saw they had a better chance with the British of recovering these lands than they ever would with the Americans. So the majority of them chose the side of the British. Plus, the British were able to reward and equip them, which is something the American forces were not able to do. Now, some of the tribes did stay with America, provided services, or they even remained neutral, which was a good thing. But overwhelmingly, they, um, they went for the, the British forces. And the British encouraged them to raid up and down um, the 13 colonies. But predominantly in New York, along their frontier, Pennsylvania's frontier, and there were Indian actions in Georgia and the Carolinas as well. What would you say was the primary concern of Congress regarding Britain's Indian allies, and what plan did they develop? Well, all these pleas are coming in from the frontier, uh, that they needed help, that they needed troops, either militia or they needed the Continentals or both and in force. So a decision was made on June the 10th, 1778, by Congress's Board of War, which ultimately concluded that a major Indian war was in the near future. They had to take action. It was decided that a defensive war would prove insufficient to stem the tide of the numerous devastating Indian and Loyalist raids. And the approximately 3,000 troops that they allocated for the offensive um, did not immediately materialize. Because as we know, in 1778, 
there are other things going on to divert uh, the Continental Army's uh, attention. But gradually it was determined by the Congress that this 3,000 troops that they thought would be enough, it was determined that they would have to assign many, many more if they were to be successful and to curb the Indians, if not destroy them. Who was John Sullivan and what was his role in this plan? Well, John Sullivan is a, from New Hampshire, and he was an ardent patriot right from the beginning. And, but his background was he was a lawyer. As most of the Continental officers, it was trial and error to learn how to command large amounts of men and to form an army. Now, Washington decided that it was to be a multi-pronged attack on the, on the Native Americans. And he wrote to John Jay, who later became the first, uh, or one of the first uh, chief justices of the Supreme Court, that he believed that whoever got the command has a flattering prospect of acquiring more credit than can be expected by any other this year. That's a direct quote. Nevertheless, Washington's choice was not a given one due to the partisan and self-centered seniority-based selection process of the Continental Army. So politics played a big role back then, as of course it does now. The approved uh, guiding military order was uh, General Charles Lee, Major General Charles Lee. And he was suffering suspension for his actions at Monmouth. Next in line was Philip Schuyler. He was a New York um, uh, preferred guy, but he was incapacitated by ill health. Uh, even if he could be swayed to uh, retract his commission resignation, which he had done because of his health. Next was Israel Putnam, who was evaluated as being inept. Um, there was some people thought that he was maybe going senile. Uh, the next acceptable candidate was General Horatio Gates, the victor of Saratoga. However, Washington's invitation to lead was more as an inducement for him to decline than for an encouragement for him to acquiesce. To Washington's relief, Gates replied, quote, the man who undertakes the Indian service should enjoy youth and strength requisites I do not possess, unquote. He further replied that, quote, that your excellency should offer me the command to which I am totally unequal, unquote. Next in line was this New Hampshire Major General John Sullivan, who I said was an ardent patriot from the beginning. He had loyally served Washington without complaint, right from the very beginning of the war, and was his obvious leadership selection. Sullivan was an officer who pursued and attained admiration from his troops for his military exploits. He uh, commanded part of the wing of the army at Trenton and made a name for himself. Now, his health was questionable, but he accepted the challenge with only a brief hesitation. Now, not everybody was impressed with his military service. 
Dr. Benjamin Rush referred to Sullivan in his State and Disorder of the American Army as, quote, weak, vain, without dignity, fond of scribbling, in the field, a madman, unquote. So, you know, he wasn't preferred by everybody. Talk about the history of Easton, Pennsylvania. Okay, well, let's, um, let's go back to when, I guess, Easton was formed and all. Now, it was a relatively new community. Um, it only became a town in 1752, uh, and it was established as the county seat for the frontier. Now, at that point, Northampton County, brand new county, uh, comprised almost all of Northwest Pennsylvania. So today, uh, it would be Northampton County, as well as Wayne, Pike, Monroe, Carbon, Lehigh, and parts of Schuylkill County. So, as I said, almost all of Northwest Pennsylvania. It had a small population, only of about 400 people or so, but Washington selected it for a lot of reasons. Uh, to him, it was the perfect staging area for this incursion into the uh, enemy territory due to its relatively close proximity uh, to both the Native Americans and to his own main encampment at Middlebrook, New Jersey. Now, we probably should look at what Washington really wanted uh, to be done from Easton. First, he, he sends orders to Sullivan after he selected, quote, having appointed you to take command of the expedition, which is to be carried on to the westward against the Indians of the Six Nations, you will be pleased forthwith to repair to Easton in order to supervise and forward the preparations for that purpose. Uh, the orders continued that why he was at Easton, and it was all thought it was only going to be a couple of weeks, he should take every necessary order to make um, arrangements with the quartermaster and commissary general relative to the supply of stores and provisions which ought to be hastened to the places um, of their destination, which all possible dispatch at Easton. So Sullivan gets to Easton on the 7th of May. Like I said, it's a small town, uh, not a lot of buildings, and this army of several thousand is now crowding into the town. So every possible space is being used for barracks, for his officers. They have a new courthouse which is, becomes um, barracks. There are warehouses all along the river, the uh, Lehigh River that comes into uh, confluence with the Delaware. So they're used. And plus they sent up tents and everything else and used every inn that they could get their hands on. Um, so Easton was very crowded. It has dramatic changes on the town for the seven weeks they're there. Um, now, the composition of Sullivan's command in Easton is two brigades, one of General William Maxwell 
and the other belonged to General Enoch Poor. Now, as I said, the town was chosen because of its strategic position at the confluence of the Delaware and Lehigh Rivers, which made for the movement of materials and supplies for such an expedition easier and more efficient. Colonial roads are terrible. It was easier to move things on waterways and um, certainly to bring things up the Delaware. And um, also it was a natural area for travelers to cross the Delaware between coming from New York and New England and to Philadelphia. Uh, there was a, a ferry there that was widely used. As I said, to stockpile the vast amounts of assorted and essential military materials, Easton maintained elaborate waterfront warehouses, uh, which was located naturally near the ferry, so didn't have to go very far. And I found in my research that these warehouses were up until the end of the 19th century, maybe even into the beginning of the 20th, because I saw photographs of them before they were demolished for lack of use. Now, there were descriptions of Easton. And this took a lot of digging because even though the army's there for seven weeks, a lot of times I would see entries in journals that nothing happened here today. And that was repeated. But I did locate some primary uh, descriptions. Uh, an ensign Daniel Gookin of the 2nd New Hampshire Regiment described Easton as, quote, this town is very pleasantly situated unquote, and has a, quote, fine stone church and courthouse, which lie in the center of the town and a stone jail. The inhabitants, German, buildings made most of stone, unquote. Others didn't share the same congenial praise for Easton. Uh, a Lieutenant Samuel Moore Shute of the 2nd New Jersey Regiment caustically described the town of having, quote, but three elegant houses in it and about as many inhabitants that are any way agreeable. Take them in general, they are very inhospitable set, all high Dutch, which he meant German, and Jews. However, Captain Daniel Livermore of the 3rd New Jersey Regiment concurred with Gukin that Easton was a pleasant town consisting of chiefly low, not high, Dutch or German, with Jews as the primary, primary merchants. Um, so this is greatly increasing um, the strain on Easton's population. And to top it off, too, there are Native Americans serving in the American army, and they're staying in Easton. And this didn't go over with everybody very well. You know, here there's a major expedition to destroy the Indians, and they've got Indians in their encampment. But it was noted by a Reverend William Rogers, who was chaplain of the Pennsylvania line, that four Stockbridge Indians are at Easton and are to act as guides. And we expect on the march the Oneidas and the friend Tuscaroras to offer us their assistance. However, Sullivan took note of reports that some of his troops, quote, have been so imprudent as to ridicule and speak contemptibly of the Indians who have come to join us, unquote. 
He decided that, quote, such persons reflect upon the cruelty of their conduct, unquote. He further stated in his June 16th order book, quote, nothing can be more ungenerous than to ridicule those who have come voluntarily to venture their lives in our aid, unquote, and then, quote, it would be the high of imprudence to give umbrage to a people who are about to lend us the most generous assistance, unquote, as they are perfectly well acquainted with this country. Sullivan vowed that anyone who, quote, gives the least discouragement to these people must in malice to his country far exceed the most inverted Tory and must expect to be treated accordingly. So Sullivan is going to great pains to defend the Indians that are in the encampment at this time. Now, there are other things happening in Easton, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, when you get that many troops together, they are staying there longer than they're supposed to be, um, eager for battle, and in some cases, inactivity breeds a lot of trouble. So we could talk about some of that if you'd like. Why was it occupied and what was Sullivan's experiences there? Well, constantly Sullivan was under pressure from Washington to move. Remember, Washington saw this as a lightning strike to right away get there, to join up at the other prong of the offensive, which is going through New York under General Clinton, and then to hit the Native Americans as soon as possible. I would guess the Indians knew almost as soon as the troops were gathering there that something was going to happen. Remember, there are a lot of loyalists in Northwest Pennsylvania, and they certainly are supplying intelligence to the British, the other loyalist groups, and to the Native Americans. Um, there, were, there were problems in Easton that had to be overcome. Um, first of all, what was keeping Sullivan back was the supply shortages. And he saw very quickly that the timetable that Washington had decided on was not possible. And he is getting increasingly letters from Washington that you better get moving. Because also there's a military operation season. Uh, you want to get going in the spring as soon as possible. I'll give you an example in history. Remember what happened to the, the Nazis in Russia? They started too late and got caught by the winter. Well, if you're starting in mid-June, ball's not that far behind. And Sullivan is giving uh, excuses to Washington. One such one was, I should have removed from this post before now, but the stores not having... Uh, got up the Susquehanna, I thought it imprudent to throw the whole army on to consume the provisions before in readiness to move on. In addition, Sullivan was plagued by the poor quality and damaged supplies that had arrived in Easton, um, which many were 
condemned as being unfit uh, for consumption. Sullivan assessed why he was there that as much as one-third of the Army's packed meat was contaminated. Now, some of the spoilage may have been due to the calculated efforts on the part of the Teamsters trying to purposely lighten their loads as they're bringing this material into uh, Easton by draining the brine from the barrel. Inspectors placed the majority of the responsibility on the contracted southeastern Pennsylvania coopers using green wood for the kegs, the barrels, um, because Washington had kept his supply officers uninformed because he's trying to keep this all secret until February when then he begins to issue the appropriate orders. The winter months are also not advantageous to drying wood for barrels. Wood cut in the spring held significant amounts of um, sap, and the following warming temperatures dried the containers and caused their seals to leak. Now, it's interesting to note the New York wing of the campaign had very little problems in these regards. Uh, their stores were set aside during the previous fall because they thought there was going to be the expedition around then. So they're preparing everything then, and they dried the wood properly for um, a campaign that they thought was going to be against Canada. Subsequently, there were, um, there were no significant complaints uh, a molded bread and a substantial lack of liquor required for the army in Clinton's a part of the campaign. But others in the Continental Command took note of Sullivan's excuses for his delay in Easton. One such was Alexander Hamilton, who's on Washington's staff, and he wrote to Major General Nathaniel Green that General Sullivan appears to be very anxious to have his supplies of every kind forwarded to him, that he may begin his career. He is the usual pother, but dispatch is certainly very desirable. And Sullivan continued to reinforce his reputation as a complainer why he's at Easton. But the supporting officers are doing all they can to give him everything that he wants. But on top of the problems with the Continental Army why he's in Easton, Sullivan manages to anger the government of Pennsylvania. And he does this by using a bad choice of words, the word impressment. Now, we probably think of impressment as the British, when they used to go in and impress sailors, seize them on the streets of the various towns for service in the Navy. So it's got a bad connotation about it especially Americans that are going for their liberty. Sullivan talks about impressing wagons and uh, wagoneers to bring the supplies up. And this did not go over well. He ends up having to apologize and say, this was a bad choice of words. I really didn't mean it. And um, it just made enemies in the Pennsylvania government, which made supplying him in Easton much more difficult. Another big problem was he gets to Easton and the next, next leg of the army, was it was supposed to go to the Wyoming Valley. 
Now, on maps, it looked good that there was a roadway to Wyoming. But, in fact, it was really basically just an Indian path, which was very inadequate to move a large force of such as Sullivan's. So then he's compelled, while he's waiting, to divert troops from training to road building. And this project was a a large piece of military engineering. As by mid-June, Sullivan's troops had hacked into the wilderness 40 miles of new road, um, including bridges, which caused more delays for, as I said, a raid that Washington hoped would be a lightning strike. So a lot of things aren't going right. And as the troops keep coming in to Easton, you know, beginning in May, some of them suffered from the lack of basic necessities, such as clothing, shoes, and other supplies required for their existence in the field. Uh, This serious condition was especially evident among the New Jersey troops. Sullivan learned from a letter from a Colonel Cortland that, quote, Shirts and other articles of clothing are wanting for his regiment. Spencer's regiment are almost naked. General William Maxwell from New Jersey quickly surmised this trouble originated with the New Jersey politicians in Trenton. So again, we have politics involved, who somewhat were ignoring the growing problem, which got worse day by day. Maxwell wrote to them with a copy of a letter to Washington who, if he didn't agree with it, he would have stopped it. And a report that, quote, the soldiers were so shamefully neglected by the legislature of the state that I am at a loss to know how to address this subject. So supplies are hitting Sullivan's army over and over and over again in um, Easton. Now, as I said, there are dangers when you're getting a large force sitting there with very little to do. Um, there was a lot of military justice that had to be shown. And Sullivan is a stickler for following the rules. There were several murders. Uh, a Pennsylvania shopkeeper was murdered by um, some soldiers for refusing to sell liquor. Uh, the culprits were, were caught, and they weren't all hanged. Sullivan was able to discern which one had committed the crime, but that didn't stop him from putting the noose around all three and then make them stand there for 15 minutes to half an hour Um, One guy fainted, and one guy asked for pity, for mercy, and he was pardoned. The other guy did not uh, ask for anything and didn't show any remorse, and so he was hanged. And these are big events. All the troops were required to attend, to make an impression on them what would happen as well as the townspeople came out for this, because hangings in the 18th century were, I hate to use the word entertainment, but that's exactly what they were. Now, there was also another incident 
where a couple of New Jersey troops who were actually loyalists are trying to get um, troops to desert and go over to the British cause. The same thing happens to them. Sullivan finds them guilty at a military court, which he's causing these to happen fairly often. And um, Ken finds out the one that's supposed to do it, who is uh, really inciting the troops. And again, a public hanging. Um, There's a hill in Easton that most of the executions were carried out on, which strangely enough is where a Catholic church is located now. Another worry in Easton. It's something we're going through now. Epidemics. Uh, Even under the best condition, 18th century armies were not known for maintaining ideal health conditions. By June the 9th, Sullivan was aware that his troops were exhibiting signs of fevers. His regimental physicians and surgeons attributed these illnesses to, and this is an interesting one, to, quote, too frequently going into the water of the Delaware and Lehigh rivers and remaining too long in that situation. And that's probably due to the fact that the sanitary conditions are not being followed and human waste and other things are being dumped into the rivers and these guys are swimming in it. So Sullivan gives an order that the troops are not to go in every day. He, he gives an exception of Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays before sunrise for some reason uh, that his commanding officers will police this and, uh, and watch over the men. And he, the, the uh, commanding general, Sullivan, expects these orders to be carried out uh, because he needs every man that he's got. Now, besides, you know, attesting to the men's physical well-being, Sullivan is uh, very interested in their spiritual uh, well-being. Remember, he's a from New England very devoted to his faith and that is seen throughout the war through most of the New England regiments. So the general took his religion very seriously and actively urged his army chaplains to fervently preach the word of God to the men and ultimately inspire a moral environment for them. So he's requiring them to attend services. Um, on Sunday, but also sometimes during the week, uh, with sermons to his chaplains with a theme of God's expectations in order to achieve success in the expedition. Um, Ensign Gorkin, who we talked about before, who had uh, bad opinions of Easton, he confirms these religious devotions. He records in his journal on the 29th of May that, quote, went to church, heard a sermon in Dutch, which again is probably German, saw the priest administer the sacrament. He further noted that the manner of ministering the sacrament was, quote, first of the men come around the altar. The minister takes small white wafers, almost as big as a copper money, which he puts in the mouth, speaking to everybody. The same with the wine. 
the organ going all the time and people singing. So, and this continues even when they will leave Easton on the march. Another issue you wouldn't think the Army would have to worry about while they're in Easton is counterfeit money. But again, like most armies, people see a way to make a buck and how to cheat the soldiers. So it was found that counterfeit currency was being introduced. So Sullivan urges his troops to examine their bills and immediately bring the altered ones to him. He gives orders to his soldiers that information whom they receive the bogus bills from, whether it's local civilians or other soldiers. Now, this is a problem enough because the continental money, even the accurate continental arm money, has an expression that it's not worth a continental because the Congress and the individual states produce thousands of worthless bills. And hard money was difficult to come by, but it was preferred. And this is something that occurs a lot with farmers who don't want to part with um, their livestock or their um, various other goods, corn and such, that they want hard money. And this problem also comes to that when the British are in the area, they're all too glad to sell to them because they do pay in gold and silver. Now, not everything was um, hard in Eastern. Um, Sullivan liked parades, military parades. And he would bring the men out. He would have salutes. He was trying to instill in them a certain esprit de corps. For the officers, um, they had some fun when Lady Washington arrived in Easton on June the 15th. She had just left her husband in New Jersey and was traveling back to Mount Vernon. So this was a big honor. Though she doesn't stay at Easton. Um, she's escorted by Sullivan and other generals, Maxwell and Poor, and 20 other officers to go to Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem is a better inn in the town than Easton does. But it come, becomes a very festive occasion. So these, you know, these kind of things and um, other matters are occurring. As I said, it's a strain on the town for the seven weeks. As every building, every place for lodging, every piece of land is being utilized. Why does Sullivan abandon the city and where does he go next? Okay, well, finally, by mid-June, the expedition is starting to come together. Um, he's got the supplies he feels he needs. The road is finished, big enough for, you know, his expedition. And we're, we're not just talking about troops marching. We're talking about cannon being pulled. We're talking about lots of wagons um, and everything else in the way of support. So he's ready, ready to go. And by June 18th, he gives the orders to move. Now, remember, he's being brought it by Washington all this time. And Washington expected him to leave a month before. 
Washington never expected him to stay in Easton. But in the end, uh, Sullivan decides, okay, I'm going to go no matter what. Um, The pledges that the Pennsylvania state government made in the way of troops, militia, and other support never materialized. So Sullivan figured out quite soon he was on his own. Um, In the end, the Pennsylvania militia uh, decided that their primary responsibility was not uh, defending the borders along the Pennsylvania frontier in New York, that their duty was to defend their own individual counties, and they were not departing from there. So the army heads to New York uh, to meet up with the other portion under General Clinton. And the combined force has several engagements along the way. Uh, The largest one is in Newtown, New York, where the British loyalists assemble their forces and uh, the Indians, but it's much smaller than, than Sullivan's expedition. And so they're defeated. Very few casualties. Um, on either side. And so the expedition is able to carry out Washington's orders of scorched earth to burn out the Indians, their crops, their villages, in effect, their ability to wage war. And so the, the goal is, is accomplished when they, when they get there. And once that's done, there's about 40 towns that are destroyed, obliterated. Sullivan returns. He basically comes back the way that he went. The New York element splits off. He comes back to Easton for about a week and then goes on to Washington's army at Middlebrook. Because remember, he has one third of Washington's army. So uh, the commander in chief needs those troops back. But Did this accomplish the purpose for what it was assigned? Um, Most historians would would say, no, it didn't. Because what it did was the Native Americans, though they faced famine, they faced the destruction of their, their towns, which were very well organized, they thirsted for revenge. They were going to get even. And so there are more attacks made in the, primarily in New York, but also in Pennsylvania. And um, they are still supplied by the British. One of the goals that Washington had hoped that Sullivan would accomplish was to go on to Fort Detroit, which was a major supply base for the British uh, for giving their the weapons and everything else to the Indians. But Sullivan never even got close because he ran out of time. So I said, he left late in June. And by the time you hit fall, it's already getting cold. What does this story reveal to us about the revolutionary era? Well, I think one thing on both sides, British and American, it shows that despite a tremendous amount of planning, of orders being given, of optimism, um, 
it didn't take much to delay or even completely ruin strategies or expeditions. These military schemes look great on paper, on maps, but again, both sides forgot to take into consideration the topography of America, you know, the mountain ranges, the forests, the lack of roads and things, and then the great distances. And this occurred throughout the war. Um, also, this tells us that the British Parliament had grown tired of this war that never seemed to end. No matter what they did to try and stop the Americans, it just seemed to go on and on and on. Uh, they would defeat one American army, another one would pop up, especially when they moved their operations to the south. Um, and the war was costing the British government millions of pounds. And by 1779, the war was evolving into a world war. Because now we have France, Spain, and the Netherlands fighting the British. So they're stretched very thin. And the Caribbean islands, the sugar islands, are worth more to the British economy than all of America. And also India, they're fighting there. So the British soon begin to see that all this effort is not panning out in America. And by 1781, the feelers are being put out for, for peace. The negotiations are starting in Paris, and they won't go on for two more years. Now, that's not to say these Indian raids are not continuing. They said they go up into almost up until the very end of the war. Um, but once uh, the 1783 Treaty of Paris is signed, the British begin to fold their forces. And by December of 83, their last outpost in North America, besides Canada, is evacuated. And the war's over. Andrew Zellers Frederick, thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. I hope I've shared a little bit about this. Um, I know the folks in Easton are, are proud of the role that they played in the revolution. Uh, I probably should have mentioned, too, that besides Sullivan's expedition, Easton also had a prisoner of war camp. Uh, it had hospitals. Uh, the Moravians had established a lot of hospitals in the Lehigh Valley after like battles of Germantown and Brandywine and such. So the town was being used for that. And um, all through the war, it was a major passage. I said that ferry was invaluable. So you had everybody that you could name in the revolution passing through Easton at one time or another. So as I said, I know the folks in Easton are quite proud of their heritage. So it's been my privilege to relay some of that everyone. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.